The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 25, here as the word of the living God sounds forth to you today. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there is no partiality. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated and please pray with me. Our great God and Father, as we turn again to your word, we pray that you would send forth your light into our dark hearts and our dark understanding. We pray that you would teach us and shape us more into the likeness and image of our Savior Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. The clock in the back can't be right. It's like someone took forever to make an announcement. (laughs) Anyway. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, I had to, I'm sorry. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I live in an incredible time. And I don't necessarily mean 2024, though I'm very aware that that is indeed the time in which we live. I'm not talking about the advances of medicine or of technology or Uh, Maybe you are entering into a new season of life, like grandparenthood, or a career, or a relationship. I'm not talking about those things, though those might be happening, and though they can be wonderful. What I'm talking about is you and I have the privilege, the honor, the blessing, the, 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 I don't even know what words to attach The gift that it is to be recipients and enjoyers of the new covenant. You you and I live in a time where the age to come, that of which we heard this morning, the age to come is breaking into the current age even now. Maybe you could say it this way. You live in an age where forever is unfolding before your very eyes. That's the kind of time you live in. And so often, either with the distractions of the world or even the familiarity 
of these things, we can lose sight of the honor that it is that we live in a time where forever, eternity, the eternal state, whatever words you want to, the end of the story is crashing into the even now. C.S. Lewis tried to kind of capture this in words when he talked about early in Narnia where it was always winter and never Christmas. And then as that story unfolds and as Aslan is on the move, you see winter, is, its grip is breaking. And with every sound that the, uh, that the rivers made as they thawed, you heard freedom ringing through the land. We live in an age like that. You might say, you picked a winter-breaking analogy for today? Yeah, it just worked out that way. Uh, but but I, I'm not looking at maybe the things you think I'm looking at. I'm not looking outside at the snow or at the mountains that are you know, crumbling down or at society that seems to be ever more maddening itself on its pursuit of destruction. I'm not looking at those things and saying, Look, I see the new creation crashing into this world. You might say, if you're not looking at that, what are you looking at? This breaking in of the new world, this dawning of forever, isn't necessarily seen in the Sierras as beautiful as they are. It's seen in places like the one in front of me right now. It's seen in the church of Jesus Christ most brightly now. Again, if I could steal from Lewis, it's seen in the redeemed sons of Adam and in the rescued daughters of Eve. That forever, you being brought into, uh, what's the language Paul uses? You are a new creature, you're part of the new creation, you are those that the dawning that's happening. And so when you look around, you can say, surely he's making all things new and he's starting here and it grows out from here, but it starts here. We cannot afford to lose sight of that. Now we're going to see it in things that, again, we need to look in the right places to see it. I'm not looking at the election that's looming, and I use that word intentionally, looming over us, and I'm like, wow, the new creation's coming. Like, no, maybe judgment, I don't know. But if you look, at the, if you look in the right areas, you can see the glimmers of that forever. You might say, well, what areas? Well, Paul actually lists a couple of them. And the first one that makes his list is marriage, and the second one is family. And it's like, it's as though, well, it's not even as though, he's saying, look, there. New creatures conduct themselves differently. There. And the simple takeaway you and I must take, brothers and sisters, Your marriage now is bigger than you. Your family, bigger than you. The way you conduct yourself in this world as a new creature in Christ, bigger than you. 
It has to do now with who and what you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, I go way out of my way to make this point up front for a very simple reason. These passages, verses 18 through 25 in particular, are extremely familiar. Even as you heard them read, you might have been like, oh, man, we could talk about submission today. Oh, I should have gone home after lunch. You might have thought that, but here, here's what I want you to think. As a new creature, how should I live in light of my place among the new creation? My marriage, my family, my life is caught up in a story so vastly bigger than I ever imagined, ever. And so as we hear them, I don't want you to hear them as like, oh, there's another box I get to check. I want you to hear it as, this is what it is to be a new covenant, new creature participant. And if I could hear it that way and see it that way, and I could see the roles within marriage and the duties within family and the way I conduct myself in the world, not now as a box to be checked, but as part of my inheritance, I think it would radically transform some marriages. I think it would radically transform some families. I think it would radically transform our world if we could get our arms around this. Your marriage is for the glory of God. Your family, the way you conduct yourself in your family, is for the glory of God. And so because your life reflects the coming age, these are the ways in which you ought to then conduct yourself in the present age. And so we want to look at two primary pieces. I thought we'd get to family today. There's no way. So we're going to look at two parts. The, the glory in wives submitting, and the glory of husbands loving. These come to us as a gift from the very one who is bringing that forever into the world and who is the designer, author, and finisher of marriage. And so rather than submitting my wants and desires and asking him to amend his to mine, I'm just simply going to say, Speak, Lord, your servants, listen. And so we want to consider first the glory of wives submitting. The glory of the role of the wife in marriage. Paul turns his attention from kind of the, that, that vastness that was, inclu- or that was detailed at the end of verse uh, 17. I, th- I mean, I mean. Uh, Galatians, that's the wrong book. I was like, you left the gospel, what? (laughs) The glory that uh, is unfolding for us, there we go, there's Colossians. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Christ, giving thanks to God. I mean, this is just this all-encompassing, huge uh, command. You might say, well, what does that look like? Paul goes, thank you for asking. Here's what it looks like in marriage. 
Here's what it looks like in the family. Here's what it looks like in the world. Here's what doing all things to the glory of God looks like in the various uh, spheres in which we are called to engage. And so, as Paul turns to that, this idea of life being lived solely Deo glory, for the glory of God alone, then has implications, real implications, for husbands and for wives and for parents and for kids and for employers and employees and all the way down, no one's exempt from it. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 3, you'll see the theological foundation for why Paul is, is pushing these new creation qualities of life right to the forefront. Verse 1 of chapter 3 If then you've been raised with Christ, this is all new creation language. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That's that foundation. You're raised with Christ, hidden with Christ, uh, united and knit to Christ. And all of your life then is not yours. It belongs to him and it should be spent for his glory. And so the, the, the right redeemed son of Adam and the rescued daughter of Eve would say, well, what would that then look like? Don't simply say, live it for God's glory. If I don't know how, Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, all right, here's how. And so, like a good gentleman, Paul says, essentially, well, ladies first. So, (laughs) listen as the word of the living God addresses you. And before we get it, I guess, yeah, one more little caveat. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm married I understand this is very applicable. Wonderful, I'm glad you made the connection. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm not married yet. Off the hook. Negative. If this is what God has for you, you need the word of God shaping your view of marriage, not the world. And so listen, young person. If you're a young man, heed what is said to young men. Also listen to what's said to young ladies to help guide you as to what you ought to be then looking for. Young ladies, quite the same. Listen to what it says to women in preparation for that and be listening for the type of young man that you ought to then been looking for. Never does it say, good sense of humor. Ladies, you should be looking for a man who loves, provides, protects zealously, right? Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I'm neither married nor do I think marriage is on the horizon for me, either given your status in life or age. At minimum, could you look at a beautiful picture of Christ in his church and say, marvel of marvels how God is weaving the gospel through all these areas of life. No one should emerge being like, man, I was off the hook today. No, you're all on the hook. So, The address to the wife is that she would submit to her husband. It is a command. It's an imperative. It's not an option. It's a present imperative. So it's it's an ongoing way of living life. She is to submit herself 
to her husband. There is a, a hierarchy within marriage as God created it. God, the author of it, gets to tell us how the thing works. And he's telling us in his word with, with no real fogginess or ambiguity that the role of the wife as part of the new creation flourishing in her role is a role of submitting herself to her husband. As one commentator by the name of Harris puts it, he says, it is a case of voluntary submission in recognition, now here, here's the uh, absolutely important part, of the God-appointed leadership of the husband and the divinely ordained hierarchical order within that creation. God is the creator of all things, including marriage, and so he gets to, he gets to set the borders of it and the shape of it and the, the way in which it carries itself out, and that is not really up for us to fiddle with. God is God, simply put, and we are not. And as God, he and he alone gets to order things and border things the way that he desires for his own purposes. Therefore, if happiness is to be found, if happiness is to be found, it is not found in bending his standards to fit my preferences. It's actually found in submitting my preferences to his standards. Happiness isn't found in me saying, well, I don't like that God wants the husband to be the leader of the home and the wife to submit. I mean, have you met the husband? I mean, come on, look at him. Well, you may have some valid points there, but you're not the one who gets to design it. Our world is full of confusion on this. Even as I like say that word submission over and over, you're like, oh man, there'd be people turning over if they could hear what we were saying. It's the way that God clearly in his word, speaks. And he's the one who gets to do it. And you might say, but I don't like the way he does it. I would lovingly, gently, yet firmly say, I understand, and that's part of the problem. Our problem is we don't like many of the things the way God's made them. Right? He's he's different than we are. Praise God. And the areas where I don't like what he has said is not an area for God to change. It's an area where I need radical transformation. The way that I think and the way that I act and even the way that I feel. And so God is the one who's ordered it. And our desire should be that we would love and adhere to the way that God has ordered it. I'm grieved when I do not love the way God has made things. That exposes something wrong in me, not something wrong in God. So we ought to, when we encounter parts of the scripture that are hard for us, we ought to then say, Lord, shape me more into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. Now, you were hoping for grammar, your hopes are brought to fruition. The way that Paul puts the imperative, the command, that's in the present tense, meaning always, uh, is in a sense that this is a submission that she offers herself. 
freely offered, or the quote from Harris says, a voluntary submission. This is not something into which she's to be forced, coerced, or manipulated. I'm not sure if you've noticed it yet. I hope you have, but I'm not sure if you have. You can't change others around you. The person next to you is like, what? It's a rough Sunday for them. Pray for them. You can't change all those around you. You might say, okay, where is he going with this? Paul does not say, notice it, you make sure that she doesn't give the command to the husband. Gives the command to the wife. He doesn't say, husbands, you make sure to say on the daily, sometimes multiple times depending on the day, you need to submit in all of these ways that I will list. Or you, or the wife to the husband, you need to love me in all of the ways I prescribe. Neither of those are stated. The command goes to the woman, submit to your husband. The command goes to the husband, love your wife and don't be harsh with her. But consider this, and hear hear me out on it. What if instead of trying to shape everyone else around us, what if each spouse just dedicated themselves to this? I will obey what God has for me. By his help, according to his word, and for his purposes. I'm going to pray that God transforms me. Imagine a marriage where both a husband and a wife prayed that kind of prayer. God, help me with submission. God, help me with love. What a wonderful union that would be. What real growth and godliness would result. Rather than the futility of, the, of each trying to change the other first, what if each of them just says, I'm going to hear what God's word says for me, and I, I will, by God's help, strive to be what God calls me as part of the new creation to be. I think we'd see real change in marriages across the board. He adds to that, submitting to the husband, a qualifier as is fitting. Now, this is where, and I know maybe this wasn't on the top of your mind as things you hoped we'd cover today. This is why lexicons are so dangerous. Not leprechauns. Lexicons. The jury's still out on leprechauns. But if you were to, knowing no Greek, do a word search and look for a gloss of terms, you'd be like, all right, I'm hoping there's an out clause on fitting. And you were to read through the list of possible glosses, not knowing how language works, you would run across this as a possible translation for as is fitting, as is convenient. Some of you are like, hallelujah, let's close in prayer. Submit when it's convenient. Newsflash ain't going to be convenient. Don't got to do it. So that's not how that word is functioning here. As is fitting or as is fitted, as is appropriate or uh, to, uh, to bend or to fit a standard. And he puts it, oddly enough, in, in the imperfect, which stresses 
and emphasizes the ongoing nature of it. This continual way of living, wives, in submission to your husband, is actually done with a standard in mind. It's not just void of a standard, it's actually fitted to a standard. And both the carrying of it out is perpetual, and the standard is always perpetual. You might say, well, who or what is the standard? Well, I don't know anywhere else we could point other than to say this, He gives you the answer at the end of the phrase, in the Lord, Christ Jesus being that standard. And so far from saying uh, that, that it's just this blanket statement that you hope to figure out, he actually puts this beautiful protector that keeps you from veering off into one of two ditches. The one ditch with regards to submission might be this. Should I then submit if it's to follow into sin? What is the resounding answer of that? No, never. Never, 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 never. Never is submission to be with regards to sin. You actually aren't free to do that. This is within the the realm of what is proper in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is within the area of freedom of Christians, not in areas of sin. There's a second uh, ditch that it wants to keep us from. Those who would say, by way of lip service, I know I'm to submit, wives well, should submit, and then their life does not then reflect that. That is not a submission that is then fitted to the standard, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how it actually protects both areas where we tend to go wayward? The one saying, then fine, I'll, I'll submit on everything, including the sin. No. But it's also to protect the other side where a God-fearing wife might say, yeah, where's the submit? And then if you could watch the videotape of life, would say, I don't, I mean, she says that, but she doesn't do that. It protects both. That is not a life fitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wives, you can breathe a big sigh of relief. Husbands, no Holy Spirit elbows should be uh, exercised either. The second point this afternoon, the glory in husbands loving their wives. Look what Paul says in verse 19. Husbands love your wife. Listen, husbands, is the word of the living God unambiguously, clearly, pointedly speaks to you where you sit in your chair today. Love the wife God's given you. You are to love your wife As Ephesians 5.25 says, love your wife, you might say, okay, well, that could look all kind of different ways. Well, I mean, maybe, but there's a standard there as well in Ephesians 5.25, as Christ loved his church, loved his church, and gave himself up for her. And so just as the wife's submission is to be fitted to the standard of Jesus Christ, so the husband's love of the bride is then to be fitted to the way Christ loves the church. Both of them are not then subjective or defined by the recipient. 
They're defined by Christ. He is the standard. He is the one to whom the wife's submission is fitted and the husband's love is reflective. You cannot divorce marriage from the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way he loves his church and the way his church submits to him. You can't. We'll talk at the end why, but you can't do that. What does it mean to love? As I've mentioned before, a working definition for love might be something like this, to seek the good of another at expense or cost to oneself accompanied by affection. So husbands ought to be seeking the good of their wife. That's, again, not a subjective thing. That is an objective thing. They are to seek her good. They're to do do it at cost to themselves, time, energy, affection, finances. They are to, at cost to themselves. And you might say, why do you emphasize that? Too often, love is based on what is convenient. That's not it. It's not to say, like, man, look at that. I got a little slush fun left over today. Ah, here you go. I do that sometimes with my kids. If my wallet falls open and there's like a dollar, I'm like, ah, I forgot that was there. There you go. And they, their world's like radically changed by that. That's not, husbands, you're my, that is not the illustration of what you should do. It's an, off, it's an illustration of sometimes what we do. You are to love her self-sacrificially. The giving of yourself, your time, and accompanied by affection. And you might say, I'm not an emotional dude. Baloney or not. I've seen a lot of you when your team's getting beat like a tied up goat. You're an emotional dude all of a sudden. Can't say amen, say ouch. So, I know there's emotion in there. It may not look similar to other guys or certainly shouldn't look like your wife's uh, affections. God wired us differently, but you are to love her zealously. You're to be a zealous lover of your wife. Heart engaged as well as all that you are. Peter O'Brien says of the husband's love for his wife, this should involve his unceasing care and loving service for her entire well being all that he is to seek the good of all that she is. According to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, your love, gentlemen, should be marked by patience, kindness, a rejoicing in the truth, a willingness to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things, and it is to not be marked by envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, irritability, or resentfulness. It should be marked by a refusal to insist on its own way or to rejoice in wrongdoing. Husbands or future husbands, the new world is breaking into the old. Winter is passing, spring is coming, eternity is unfolding, and one of the signs of it happens in the way you love your wife. 
happens in all the various small things, as well as the big ones. The new creation glimmers and breaks forth in the thousand little ways during the day. That's how the new age is seen in its dawning. And in, and in so doing, you reflect the one who's bringing that creation into being. You reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't stop there. As much as I kind of wish he would have. But like I said, my wants and pre- uh, preferences don't really matter. So look at the last half of verse 19. Love your wives, and he knows he's got to spell it out a little more carefully for us. And do not be harsh with them. You might say, what's the Greek say? Yeah, it says don't be harsh with them. So, <laughs> you're like, wow, I'm glad you took Greek to know that. Uh, the word that he uses might, it, it could go one of two ways, but one uh, far more likely than the other. It could mean don't be embittered against them. Or don't be harsh. Now you would know as a Christian you shouldn't be either. Like if it says don't be bitter, you're like, okay, so harsh is still on the table. Like, no, it's not on the table. We, can, we, we even know the way that this word can pull double duty in English. If I offered to you bitter words, would you know what that meant? Yeah, it'd be like you couldn't distinguish them from harsh words. It's the, same, it's the same thing as going on here. Do not be harsh with your wife. You, as the head of the home, as the head of the marriage, there are times, and perhaps it's, it's part of the, uh, one of the ways in which it is a common area of stumbling uh, for men, would be, that we have a propensity to being harsh. Now, I forgot to mention before all this, this list isn't comprehensive. I mean, it's pretty sweeping, but there are other things said in other places of Scripture. This is what the Spirit of God led Paul to say in this instance. There are other elements to marriage. So, in the not being harsh, it, it, it isn't fully comprehensive. You might say, where are you driving with this? Some guys are vastly too passive. That is also wrong. Never challenging, never correcting, always rolling over. That is dealt with in other places as well. That's only one side of it. Paul is here addressing the harshness side of it. The biting words. The stinging glances. The uh, frozen silences, the shouting, the yelling, to put it plainly, the ways in which some husbands are jerks. The Word of God says that is not acceptable. You have under your watchful care, a daughter of the king. You do not speak harshly or act harshly toward her. Never acceptable. Never. When it happens, 
repenting should immediately follow, followed by uh, action plans on how that won't happen again. This would include, so husbands verbally berating her, mocking her, shouting endlessly at her, criticizing overly or manipulating, all would fall under the banner of don't be harsh. She's the king's daughter. Know that you'll have to answer to him with how you held the watch and live in light of that reality. You might say this is a huge bummer for a Lord's Supper service sermon. Okay, we'll we'll try to turn it a little bit. We have the supper in front of us. Does that have any connection to marriage and the new creation? I want to drive it in two different directions. The first is this. I'm sure every married, hopefully every married woman in here was just like convicted. Every guy in here who's married should be like, "Mm, guilty. What do I do with my sin? Well, the same thing I do with any other sin. I take it to the feet of the God who delights to forgive. And isn't the supper a reminder of that? That it comes not as a reward, like you did well this week, here you go. That's not the view of the supper at all. The supper is help for the weak. And so if you're sitting there going like, marriage is hard. I'm a sinner. She's a sinner. We're together a lot. Sin. Uh, Yeah, I'm not surprised. What do you do with that? You go to God, both for forgiveness and then the help that he lavishly offers. No matter where your marriage is today, it is not hopeless. It is not unfixable. It is able and ready to glorify God if it would but submit to his plans and purposes. So rather than pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps or trying to change the other person, go to God for help. Go to the table and, and pray Lord, you died for my sin. You were raised again. You offer help. I need help. Do you think that that is a prayer that he would say, no, I don't really want you to be the husband I call you to be. I don't really want you to be the wife I call you to be. No, no, he will hasten to your help. One of the biggest issues I keep seeing in in marriages that, that come in and we get to talk is a total loss of hope is not hopeless. Not so long as the God who laid down his son's life for you is here to help. It's never hopeless. The second is you understand, I'm sure, that marriage is the shadow and Christ in the church is the object to which it points. Ephesians 5.31 says, let a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. This mystery is profound. This is at the end of a long section on marriage. Paul says, and I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul says, after the longest section on marriage, I believe in the New Testament, or at least the one I'm aware of, 
He says at the end of it, this whole thing points, shines, reflects towards a much greater reality. It points toward the bridegroom and his bride and and his coming to receive his bride unto himself. Your marriage gets to, was designed to, reflect that in the here and now until that day when the real bridegroom rends the heaven. Riding a horse. I mean, it's storybook to get his bride. Your marriage, redeemed son of Adam, reflects the bridegroom. Your marriage, rescued daughter of Eve, reflects the beauty of the church. Do not lose sight that your marriage is so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than your wants, wishes, tastes, and preferences. It points to the biggest of all stories. And therefore, it should reflect these things. Now, there's one other element to which the table points. Does the table point to a a past reality, a remembering of the Lord Jesus Christ laying down his life? Is there a past element to the table? Yes, absolutely. Is there a present element to the table where it's active help here now for you? Is there a present element? It's not rhetorical. Yes. Is there a future one? Yeah, don't you think it would point ahead to the wedding supper of the Lamb? where he gives to his bride, quite literally, a foretaste when she'll sit at his table and eat bread and drink wine in his presence. When all sin that is forgiven is now, a, I don't even know if you could say a distant memory, it's gone. Like a morning fog over the valley, it is burned away by his presence. And we sit with him at table rejoicing that we are our beloved's and our beloved is ours. This is a taste of that. Rejoice in it as such. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this would be true of the marriages in our church and that we would joyously submit ourselves to your To your word, O God, be at work in the marriages at Grace Community Church. Lord, help each and every one of us husbands to love our wife. Lord, help every wife at our church to graciously and Christ-likely submit to her husband. O God, work and cause us, your bride, to long for the day where you will rend the heavens and come down. Until then, we celebrate what you've done. And we celebrate it in the way that you've told us to. By taking bread and taking the cup. Looking with an eye of faith to the bridegroom's coming. We ask this in our Savior's name.
We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.